Well, good morning. Hmm. Sadly, final time I'll say that. This is it. I know. No, we go back so far. So many conversations. Um, truly, this has been wonderful to be here. Um, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for the chance to be up here to share with the, you know you the things that I have spent time focusing on, thinking through, dwelling over. Uh, I, I'm I'm grateful to have been able just to learn about you and your ministries. Um, of course, I don't know most things about most of you or any of you really, um, but I've been able to hear some of the basics, some of the. The, here's what I do, here's how I serve, here's where my focus is, here where my passions are. Um, and truly, that's been a gift to me. Um, it's refreshing to me. I, I teach in a university to undergrad students, but I do so because I care about the church, because I have this idea that if they're trained well in my classroom, they will go out and train their congregants or their friends or their neighbors well. It's that kind of idea of exponential growth in a way. The reason I do what I do is because of what you guys are doing as well. So it's been refreshing for me to be here and to hear your story. So thank you for that. Um, I'm grateful for the chance to be able to go mountain biking yesterday. I had never ridden a mountain bike before. And yes, I'm also grateful that I wasn't one of the fools who got kicked off their bike and kissed the ground. <laughs> you can talk to Eric and Doug if you want more personal stories on that. I'm grateful that Adam sacrificed himself, mostly, for mail call. So far. But I'm also grateful that God gives me such clear words so that there's very little for you to make fun of. So with that, let's begin. <laughs> I do have to admit that uh, this final talk, is gonna, it feels to me a bit scatterbrained, um, in part because of the questions that came last night uh, after Adam's talk. Um, questions that each of you wrestle with, and I wrestled with them for my you know, measly two years, but it was enough for me to be given insight into how do you do this year after year? What does theological education look like? What are you grappling with? Um, how, how do you live continually lives of sacrifice, of, of giving of yourselves for the people in your congregations to know and love God more? Um, and I've had just many thoughts uh, since, you know, then, like kind of lying awake last night, thinking about this morning, and so I have a feeling that I'm going to go through my notes, and then at the end of my talk, it will be just a smattering of, you know, things. So there won't be a good conclusion. I apologize. But so first off, let's just recap. Uh, on the first talk, in the first talk that I gave, I walked us through doxa and doxazo in the Septuagint, okay? And I established the point there that, as Humpty Dumpty said, right, one of them is not master of them all. And the main takeaway is that when 
Glory and glorification is used for humans, you and I, people like you and I. It is always about having this exalted status. On Tuesday evening then, we turned to Romans, and I started walking us through this narrative of glory, looking at how Paul's echoes of Adam in his intended vocation, how he abdicated that. He abdicated his throne, his royal position as God's representative to the world. And how, through Christ, we all have a new and renewed hope of glory. The next day, then, I took us into Romans 8, yesterday morning. And we looked, then, at how that completion of this narrative is there in Romans 8 for Paul. Beginning in 8.17, where we are brought into the family of God and therefore co-inheritors with Christ, right? We share in Jesus' inheritance of the world. And if we are truly in him as God's children, finding our sonship, daughtership through the sonship of Christ, right, in him as the child of God, then we share in every aspect of his life. We have died with Christ, we have raised with Christ, we have been seated at the right hand of God with Christ. And that has implications for our lives, for who we are in uh, our beings, but then, as uh, Adam has used the word, in our existence and how we live that out. So, for our final time together, I want to stay in that same text. I promised you we'd stick around in Romans 8, and uh, I'm going to fulfill my promises mostly. Um, so, the question now is okay, so if humanity being glorified means that we have this position of rule, then two questions arise. Number one, when does that happen? Is it when Christ returns and we are in the new heaven, new earth, right? Is it something we look forward to, future glory, which is almost always the way that we use it? Uh, Even some of you, I think, have been noticing how many times glory is used in the the hymns or the songs that we're singing, um, which I hope you realize it is everywhere, all the time. in our prayers, in the things that we say to one another, in the songs that we sing, glory, 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 glorious, glorious, glory, glorified, we glorify, Um, it is everywhere. But it's usually in terms of when we think about glory for us, it is future. So the question is, is it now, potentially, as well as future, and then more importantly, what does that look like? What nature does that take? So that's what we're going to conclude with today. The answer isn't easy to secure, particularly in Romans 8, because it's exactly where Paul's understanding of redemption is intertempora. It is between time, right? So when you read Romans 8, we have uh, people already uh, being adopted as children of God. And yet he'll say, and we will receive our adoption. He will say that we are glorified and that we will receive glory. So how do we wrestle with this? Um, It would seem like most of the, or a a good place to look for information would be 829, 830. Even the idea of being conformed to the image, though, conformity there is just an adjective. It carries no sense of time with it. Glorified in 830... Edoxatsin is an aorist, which, according to traditional grammar rules, means that 
it has happened. It's a reality. It's something that happened in the past and it's continuing until now. Not something that's happening in the future. And this has caused a lot of consternation for scholars, commentators, when they get to this verse. A few examples of what scholars write about 8.30, doxazo. The verb tenses make it clear that Paul is looking at things from the eschatological end of the process, with even glorification already having transpired. Doxa, glory, here refers to the future glory of resurrection. What makes this interesting is that the action denoted by the verb is, from the standpoint of believers, in the future, while the other actions are past tense, right? Predestined, called, justified. We're happy to say that all those are done. They're all in the past. Glorified. Ah, but that one is the future. The glorification posited here does not begin in this life. Again, I'm sure that's a commentary that's on your shelves. Meaning that it's an excellent scholar. It's just the way that we've always read these words. But why are they so insistent that this is in the future? That Paul is so assured of, or in other words, the, the, the only way that we can make sense of it is to say that Paul is so assured of the future that he can speak about it from that future perspective as if it's already happened. But it's not really happened because it's still, as they would say, in the future. I want to suggest to you, as you've already guessed, that there's no indication in these verses that it should be taken from a future standpoint. My best guess is that scholars do so because they have very clearly not been fully brought into the presence of God, of divine glory. Therefore, the only explanation is to say that they're so assured of the future that it will happen as if it's already happened. But it comes back to this understanding of what glory or glorification is. If glorification is to be brought into the presence of God, then while yes, we are maybe in part, but the thing we really look forward to is coming still when God is fully present with us in those eschatological ways. Instead, conformity to the image of God's firstborn son, that is vocational participation, right? And I hope you have heard these words now several times. Vocational participation in that firstborn son's exalted position over creation is the task for which believers are called and purposed. The words that Paul is using, 828 through 830, for those whom he called, for those who he purposed, right, predestined, that that purpose and calling is in the present as well as in the future. If we take Paul's inaugurated eschatology seriously, and we recognize the importance of our transfer from death to life, from flesh to sin, from law to freedom, all that happens when we die with Christ and are raised with Christ to new life, if we take that seriously, then that new life is our new reality. Right? This was Adam's first lecture that Karl Barth suggests. It's a new reality. It has happened then it is a reality that much, must have much larger implications than simply waiting for something to come in the future. 
if we are raised with Christ to new life in Christ, and all that that implies, then it implies that we are partakers in that resurrection life when we share with Christ in his glory. When our bodies are resurrected, we will do so fully. But for now, we do so in Christ, at least in part. It's our reality in Christ, and it's not just a future hope. So, this morning, I want to argue that believers already manifest this decreed calling and purpose by participating in the Son's glory in the present, and that Paul makes this clear throughout Romans 8. So, what I'm going to do is take us back to chapter 8, verse 17, and then kind of rewalk through the same verses that we did yesterday, but focusing a bit more on the middle bits, the ones that we skipped over, namely the intercession uh, of the Spirit. And then I'm going to very cautiously trample down potentially your most beloved verse for pastoral ministry, Romans 8.28. So uh, I do so cautiously, but we'll get to that. So let's go back to 8.17. We're reminded that because we are in Christ, we are children, heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ, sharing in his inheritance of the world. What does this look like? I've suggested it looks like rule. Um, the other night as Adam and I were walking back, we were to the whatever place that we stay in, Lake view, lakeside, without the lake, um, <laughs> field house view. Um, yeah, <laughs> maybe it's flooded this morning with the rain, the, the mist covered it and I couldn't see it. Um, chatting about how we use this word rule, um, saying we don't really like it. It, it kind of goes against the grain of how we think, right? The idea of ruling or having dominion. Surely that's the opposite of what Christians are meant to do. And so there's something within us that kind of pushes back against the idea of rule. But I would suggest that that's simply a result of how our culture, Christian culture, has allowed us to think about what rule actually is. Um, which is why I think for Paul, right here in verse 17, talks about suffering with Christ and this relationship between suffering and glory. And so this is to whoever asked the question the other day about this relationship, suffering and glory. Typically when we read verses like this, or when we think about glory in general, because glory is always a future thing, we have it on a time continuum. It's this idea that suffering happens now and glory happens later. As if Life here is just about suffering. And if we do it well enough, if we suffer enough, then someday potentially we will have glory. And that glory perhaps will be uh, um, relation, um, I forget the word, I'm looking for a word, it, it proportional to the amount of suffering that we exist or live into here. So one question is, number one, what's the glory, that, or the, excuse me, the, the suffering that Paul is talking about? For the most part, when we talk about suffering, it's kind of 
this side of heaven suffering that happens to everyone. We experience death. Um, we have family members, close friends who die. And that grieves us, and we mourn in that, and we suffer at that loss. We have diseases, and so people suffer physically through diseases, right? The created realm is riddled with things that cause suffering, and it's indiscriminate. Every single being experiences suffering. Is that the type of suffering that Paul is referring to? It could be, um, but I actually think it's probably not. I think he's writing to a group of people in Rome who are trying to live faithfully to the gospel of Jesus as Lord and not Caesar as Lord, and they are therefore being forced to live the life that says, though I worship this God, I will suffer. I will experience persecution. And I don't want to just limit it to persecution as if only the martyrs of the world will experience this, um, but rather the idea of persecution or suffering directly as a result of living for the gospel. When we think of Jesus' life, Jesus suffered. And he suffered because he was proclaiming a different truth. He was proclaiming to the world around him that what they thought was truth wasn't truth. That there was a different truth. And because he held fast to proclaiming that different truth, he experienced suffering. Yes, on the cross, but I have to believe throughout his years of ministry, as each of you know very well, when you share in the sufferings of the people in your congregations, when you stand up for God's truths, Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have experienced suffering as a result of their Christian faith. And I think that's the suffering that Paul's referring to here. So that answers that question. The second question is then, okay, what is this relationship between suffering and glory? Again, typically glory is in the future. But how do we make sense of it in light of Romans 8.30, where Paul says glorification has happened? And here's where I think, again, Jesus is our example. 100% there is a conditional here, if, so that, or if, then. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. But again, it's a time issue, or we usually think of it as uh, an issue of chronology. First this, then that. But what if the logic isn't time? What if the logic that connects these two things together isn't first this, then that, but rather this is demonstrated by that? In other words, what if the idea of true glory or glorification is living out the suffering life. What if being glorified, what if ruling 
What if representing the king to the world in his kingdom is exhibited by living the same life that he lived? Which is to say, suffering, enduring, experiencing the evils of this world as he did. So that true glory can't be experienced unless it has something to do with experiencing suffering. So that it's not a chronological logic that ties them together, but rather one of definition of what it actually is, how it's exhibited. I think this is evident when we look elsewhere throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels and Paul's letters. One example, we've talked about it already, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has the idea of glorification more than any other Gospel, and really probably any other letter in the New Testament. It is the Gospel of glory. But for John, that's a paradox. He doesn't use the word glory in the same way that you and I are trained to use the word glory, nor with the uh, first century people in the Roman world would have used it. For John, when he says the glory of Christ being demonstrated, it happens at the cross. When Jesus says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he's not referring to his ascension. He's referring to being on the cross. What about in Revelation? Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It is very significant that John writes this and says that while, yes, Jesus has conquered, he is the lion, he is victorious, he is still exhibiting his wounds. He still shows that he is the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, at the same time. Or what about the Philippian hymn? I'll spend a couple minutes with this, in part because we're back in Paul, and in part because we just need to. These are probably the most debated, critiqued, talked about verses in the entire New Testament in church history. So we're going to do no justice to them today. Um, I mean, maybe we're justified by faith and not by works. Can have some competition with that statement, but I don't think so, because that's really just since the world of Protestantism arose. But this is from the very beginning. In fact, these are potentially the oldest words ever written. If Paul didn't write these in Philippians, and if these were outside of his own kind of wheelhouse in his head, then he's lifting it from the culture. So it's potentially that the early Christian churches had these as a poem or a hymn that they sang 
understanding who Jesus is. So two issues. What's the relationship between Jesus' lordship in verses 6 through 8 and 9 through 11? And then, what do we make of this idea of progression from suffering to exaltation, or what we can call glory? Let me just read it. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, death even on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It would seem at first glance that Jesus is made Lord. In verses 9 through 11, as a result of what he did, his suffering, his obedience unto death. But, of course, that doesn't sit well with any of us, and rightfully so. So scholars wrestle with this. Well, how, how can that be? Um, if we're not willing to suggest that something about his being changed, then what happened? Maybe it was his function that changed. But that doesn't really work either. And this is where Karl Barth is helpful. I mentioned it the other day. These are a couple quotes from Barth's Philippians commentary. There is good reason for what the ancient painters did when, in their representations of Christ ascending to heaven, enthroned in heaven, they left the wounds from the cross, thinking of Revelation. That is the meaning of the dia, therefore. It does not say that he who was humbled and humiliated was afterwards exalted, was indeed rewarded for his self-denial and obedience. But what it says is that precisely he who is abased and humbled, even to the obedience of death on the cross, is also the exalted Lord. He, let me read that last line, he who was obedient to death on the cross is the exalted Lord. God's equal has found his right in this, that in his abasement and humiliation, he is Lord over all. God has found his glory in this, that he prepares his kingdom in incomprehensible condescension. How does God demonstrate his glory? How does God demonstrate his lordship? How does God demonstrate that he is the absolute God, the insurpassable God in every way, shape, and form, the Lord of glory? He demonstrates it by, in Bart's words, incomprehensible condescension. The therefore, and I think Bart is 100% correct, the therefore then isn't saying somehow he becomes Lord, but rather that he is going to now be made 
known to the world as Lord. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow in heaven on earth, under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that he is Lord. What might not have been obvious in his life up to the cross, then is obvious after the cross. But it has nothing to do with whether he was Lord before or after. He'll talk about it as, I don't have it here, the Lord as servant and the servant as Lord. Right, catch that? When we talk about Jesus being God, we have to at the same time understand God as servant. Because the moment that we take away the idea of his servanthood, his incomprehensible condescension, is the moment that we don't fully understand who the God is that we worship. Because he's a God who has revealed himself by coming into this time and space, this world of evil, and bearing the marks of it on his own body. That's how he has demonstrated who he is. That's how he demonstrates that he is the Lord of glory, the one to whom all heavens sing his praise and recognize the works of his hands. This is who that God is. Jesus says to Peter, Mark 8, the great turning point, Right? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter doesn't have this notion that the king who will come will also suffer. The idea of the Messiah ending up on a cross is a completely foreign idea for any first century Jew. That would be a failed Messiah. But Jesus has some of his harshest words in all the Gospels right there for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. And then he will go in and talk about how those who want to follow him need to do what? Pick up their cross. And what that means is live the life that says to the world around you, I represent a different Lord. I represent a different truth. I proclaim with my voice and I proclaim with my actions that there's another king. That the world in which we live doesn't have everything right. But the kingdom of God is here in part and it's coming in full. And God will one day make all truth known. And the way that that truth gets known is through living into this life of suffering. So the point in all of this is to say, I think there's ample evidence throughout the rest of the Bible, specifically New Testament, that we all know intuitively to say, how do we represent God to the world? We do so through love. Well, what is love? Love is the greatest act of self-sacrifice. Glory is not expressed in dominance and power and authoritarian rule. 
It's expressed the sight of heaven in suffering and humility and weakness. It's expressed in giving of ourselves for the impoverished world around us, the world plagued by injustices, and as Paul says, for the created order, futility. If we want to be glorified, to live out the glory that is ours in Christ, we do so through suffering with Christ. That's what it means to be an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, having this world as our inheritance, ruling over it as God's representatives. Suffering doesn't lead to glory. Suffering expresses glory. It demonstrates the reality of our glory in Christ. It reveals our true identity. Let's keep going. I'm going to jump. This is a wee bit small because I want to put it on the page. Don't critique me for the... Get your Bibles open if you can't read it. <laughs> Romans eight twenty six through 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the, inter- because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have any of you ever preached on this? I'd be curious afterwards to know what you said about it. Because commentators don't have a clue what to do with it. <laughs> it's very easy, or it's, I shouldn't say it's very easy. It's one thing to preach on these verses. It's another thing to try and say, what are these verses doing within this larger context? Um, because that's the question they can't answer. Uh, some will say, somehow Paul just goes on this tangential kind of whatever, you know, uh, on talking about how to pray or the importance of prayer, kind of in a, in a general way. Uh, others will talk even about it being speaking in tongues and worship, which is interesting, uh, all things considered, since it's not there. Um, but we don't know what to do with it. But the one thing that we do do is we interpret it in terms of this final verse, verse 27, essentially the same. It's the idea that we don't know how to pray or what to pray for. So the Spirit intercedes for us. And what we mean is on our behalf, for the benefit of us. For my benefit, the Spirit intercedes for me. The Spirit intercedes for your behalf, on your behalf, for you, on your behalf, for the things that you need in your life because of your sufferings. But what if it's not for the individual saints and the things that they want and need for themselves, but the things that they are meant to be praying for for the world around them? In other words, it makes perfect sense that Paul is here talking about the necessity of prayer. But he's not talking so much about my needs and your needs, praying for our own needs but rather the responsibility that each of us have as his people who pray and intercede for the world around us. But we are 
finite people. We are just as much part of this broken, chaotic order and don't necessarily always have the words to say or know what to pray for. But the Spirit does. And he intercedes not only for us on our behalf, but then also for all the things that we too are meant to be praying. Uh, whoever put this up here, I quite like it. Obviously, it's a joke on Adam. But I left it here <laughs> because the more we do these lectures, the more I just want to say, just everything that Adam said, you should just remember for this. So remember talking about prayer last night. You cannot be a Christian and not pray. Because prayer is the thing, not only that connects us to God, but if we think about it in a slightly different way, it's one of the main things by which God has called us to live out our vocation as humans. How do we live as humans? We pray to God, and we pray to God not for ourselves, but for the world around us. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. 834, immediately after this. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died. And more than that, who was raised to life. Who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The person who is at the right hand of God, who is ruling over everything, intercedes for us on our behalf. In other words, the very same thing or very similar to what the Holy Spirit is doing in Romans 26, 8, 26, and 27. But let's think about ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. That is the mercy of God. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That is your reality. You are there. You might have, you know, titanium hips and crushed ankles. Larry has a crushed ankle from yesterday. Uh, another fatality, well, not fatality, uh, issue on the bikes. Right? We have bodies that are breaking down. They are still susceptible to death. We will die. You've all heard the greatest statistic, most accurate statistic, one out of one dies. Right? That's probably going to be us. But the reality is, is that we are seated at the right hand of God with Christ. That's where we exist. That's where our true ultimate identity resides. Which is why death is not an issue for us. Yeah, of course your bodies are going to die. So what? All that means is we get a new body and a much greater life that exists in a world without suffering, pain, evil. But already, we are living in Christ at the right hand of God. And if we are there, and that's where Christ is, and he intercedes, one more, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, right? The new Adam, the new human, 
the ruler of all kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, note these words, he made you and I, all Christians forever, in the past, present, and future, to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. Kingdom and priests, two different aspects of ancient life. What does a king do? A king rules. What do the king's representatives do? Well, they represent the king to the world. What does a priest do? The priest intercedes. The priest does the opposite of the king. The king represents, sorry, the, the representative of the king, the vicegerent, represents the king to the world. But a priest represents the people and creation to the God. They intercede on behalf of the created world. Hence, kingdom and priests. One goes down, one goes up. What? <laughs> it's not fair if you say things that I can't hear. I'm going to disappear for lunch. I'm going to fast. I'm going to be spiritual in that way. So, 26 and 27. Can we say that it's part of our responsibility to intercede for the world? Yes. The Spirit does so on our behalf because we can't understand the depth of the groanings of the world around us. And so the Spirit intercedes in the same way that Jesus does. Okay, verse 28. I apologize in advance, but it's one of those kind of sorry, not sorry things. Three things to think about for Romans 8.28. And I'm not putting the verse up there yet, because that's the whole issue. It's how we translate verse 28. Three key things that we need to work through. The first issue is the subject of the sentence. Our options are God, all things, or the Holy Spirit. So my guess is that each of you with your own Bibles here and the Bibles in the pews all three are covered. God, some of the early manuscripts actually include God in the text. Hotheos. For other early manuscripts, it's simply implied in the, the verb. It's not there. So they don't really help us. The word for all things, panta, is a word that can be both either subject or direct object. So it can be all things that are doing the work uh, or the things that are having the work done. Or it can be the Holy Spirit from the previous verses. Because the subject isn't explicit in the manuscripts, 
it's implied in the verb, we have to fill it in if we assume that the manuscripts that had Hothios aren't actually the original or the earliest, and they're not the earliest. So is it the Holy Spirit from the previous verses who is interceding? The Holy Spirit now is the one who is working all things for good? Or is it God, who in 829 is going to be for knowing and predestining people for conformity? Only a few scholars that I know of actually think that it's the Holy Spirit here. Now, our understanding of the Trinity means it really doesn't matter too much, right? But it's probably best, in my mind, to say God. The second thing to think through is this word panta, all things. Is it the subject of the verb? <laughs> College freshmen or kindergartners. I only, <laughs> well, I mean, kindergartners go to camp, right? Um, college freshmen might as well, I suppose. They're usually the leaders at camp by that age. Um, panta, it's either going to be the subject or in all things. Can it be, um, can it be the thing in which God is doing the work? I'm going to follow my notes now because I'm, when we get into grammar, and this is all going to be grammar, so. If it's not the subject, then it's the direct object, all things. Or it can be an accusative of specification. Go look up William Wallace. Wallace, not William. Wallace's um, grammar, in all things. It's a blue book on your shelves. It's got some dust, I'm sure. In all things. Specification. So in all things. My apologies. All things or in all things. Then we have the verb, sunergeo. You'll see the sun there, with, same idea as the other sun compounds we've seen for participation. Ergeo is to work. Sunergeo is more tricky. This can connote two different things. Either working together so that things are progressing towards a completion, Right, they're coming together. All things came together for this. It progressed towards completion. It can also be work with, in other words, cooperate with, have partnership between two entities working together to have something accomplished. It's only used four other times in the New Testament, primarily, depending on how we, yeah, four major times. But when we put them together, here's what we get. Here are our options. God works all things for good. All things work together for good. In all things, God works for good. In all things, the Spirit works for good. And the Spirit works all things for good. Yes. <laughs> what? The next, vote. the next last vote. Oh, we'll hold off on voting. We're not done yet. We can vote at the end. Here's where... This verb is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Mark 16, 20, and they went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that accompanied it. James, you see that his faith worked with his actions. 
1 Corinthians, I urge you to put yourselves at the service of such people and of everyone who works and toils with them. 2 Corinthians, as we work together with God or Christ, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. Work together with Christ. In every instance, it is used in this latter definition, two parties working together in cooperation for something to happen, rather than the idea of kind of these things just progressing towards completion, where it's ending in goodness someplace. That doesn't determine how it should be used in Romans, but it means then that we have only a few options. But the one main option or issue is how we understand what comes after. Is it for or is it by means of? The dative participles that follow the verb, those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. They're almost always translated either as for those who love God, who are called, or to those who love God and are called. But they're not the only options. The dative participles can just as equally be read as datives of instrumentality or datives of association. In other words, rather than translating them as for those or to those, we can translate it, as you now see on the screen, by means of those who are called, or by means of those who love God, or with those who love God, with those called according to his purposes. The RSV, Revised Standard Version, had with, and then the NRSV went back to the regular four or two. If the verb is translated as work together in the sense of God progressing all things toward the end, then the datas are likely datives of instrumentality. He does so by means of. And that's what we have here. God works all things together for good by means of those who love God, by means of those called according to his purpose. All things work together for good by means of. And if we translate the verb as the opposite, as this idea of cooperation, the way it's used elsewhere in the New Testament, then our options are God works all things for good with those who love God, with those who are called according to his purpose. Or in all things, God works for good with those who love God. It's a major difference from the typical translations of 828. They're no better, no worse in terms of grammar, perfectly equal and possible. Whichever translation is normally chosen, the good that is done is usually not for anything other than the believer. For the person who's called by God, who loves God, good will come to them. That's how we typically translate it. But I'm just not convinced that based on everything else that I see in Romans 8, that that's what Paul is doing. So it leads us to a couple final questions. What is the all things that he's writing about? The traditional interpretation of all things is that it's little more than a synonym for my sufferings, for my hardships in life. Life sucks right now. This is happening, that's happening, this happening. And we can say, but don't worry, 
God is using it for good. He's going to bring good out of it. And I think there's a whole lot wrong with that idea theologically. Adam touched on it at the beginning with Karl Barth's theology of the presence of evil in this reconciled world to God. As if there's somehow a silver lining in evil. There is no silver lining in evil. Evil is evil. So the idea of God bringing good out of evil somehow just nullifies the evilness of the evil. But it sounds good. It's comforting, right? When, when people are suffering and they're experiencing pain and hardship, it sounds good to say, I know this sucks, but God will bring some good out of this. We might not be able to see it, but there is good. But perhaps that's not even there to begin with. Rather than the all things being that, what if it literally is all things? In the same way that Paul writes in Colossians, the verse Adam used in the beginning, through him to reconcile to himself all things. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. Right? God is working good for all things. In other words, the entire cosmos the entire created order that is currently groaning, living in futility, existing in futility. There is transformation that is happening as he works things for good, its original good created order. What about, as we read in Romans 2, 7 through 10, those who by patiently doing good Seek for glory and honor. He will give eternal life. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Right, we've kind of trained ourselves to get away from thinking about doing good, doing good works. But that's a part of Paul's reality. For someone who is in Christ, they are doing good. They are working for good, which is why in 2 Corinthians 6.1, as we work together with Christ or with God as ministers of reconciliation, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, therefore, we work with God or Christ, he works through us to make this happen. And why Paul says to the Corinthians, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. What does it look like or mean to receive the grace of God in vain? I think it means to accept the grace of God and do nothing with it. If we think of the Abrahamic covenant, which we are now part of, it's created to be a blessing to the world. I remember very specifically Carol Kaminsky saying when I sat in her classroom, God blesses us so that we can be a blessing. It's not for us alone. But we have been called with a purpose, which is why Paul uses these words. For those whom he called, those who he purposed, 
he foreknew that they would have this role, which is to work for good in his kingdom. The kingdom of God that Jesus preached about, the kingdom of God, the reality that Paul lived in. What does it mean to rule? What does it mean to be glorified? It means to represent God to the world around us in the same way that Jesus did. Working for peace, working for love, working for justice. Working for all the things that don't exist but should. Grace, forgiveness, mercy. When we see something, we say something. We don't just preach about it, but we live it. We don't just believe that Jesus died on a cross and defeated evil. We actually live that out. It means suffering with Christ, with a world that suffers in the same way that Christ did. What does it mean to be human? I don't have a clue. Nor do I ever expect to. But what is the purpose of humanity? I think it's this. The goal of our salvation is our conformity to the Son of God, our participation in His rule over creation as God's eschatological family. And as a renewed humanity, but only and always with the purpose of extending God's hand of mercy, love, and care to his wider creation, human and non-human. This was humanity's job in the beginning. It will be believers' responsibility and honor in the future And it's God's purpose in calling each of his people in the present to live and proclaim the gospel, which then challenges us to say, what is the gospel? In one of my classes, I have all my students ask three questions throughout the semester. What is the gospel? What is salvation? And what is justification? The three terms that everybody throws around as if they know exactly what they're talking about until they have to write it down, and then they realize they don't have a clue. I would say, for the gospel, it has to include more than the idea of an individual receiving forgiveness so they can go to heaven. For me, the gospel is more than this, but it's the idea that God has returned to dwell with his people in the person of Jesus, through whose death and resurrection God has defeated the powers of evil, launched a new creation, and reconciled all things to himself, including humanity, but not limited to humanity. And if that is what God did on the cross, and we are now brought into that, then that should impact every single aspect of our lives. It should impact our view of politics, 
how we vote. What are we voting for? It forces us to think about the issues of justice and injustice. Not because it's a fad, not because it's the thing to do, or it's a good thing to do, but because we are participating in the redemption of the created order. If in Genesis 1, justice reigns, right? God created it to have order, for things to work properly together. He looked and he saw and he said, it is good. It does just what I want it to do. There is shalom, there's peace, not just the sake of peace, but thriving and possibilities of life to be created. Adam, plant this garden, make it beautiful and whole and good. From Genesis 3 onward, injustice comes, right? The systems of the world are screwed up. This is what injustice is. There's a lack of rightness to the world. Death is here. Murder is here. Racism is here. Adultery is here. Unfaithfulness in many ways is here. Anything you can think of that we know intuitively to be wrong is here. It's not the way it's meant to be. It was never part of the created order. So if what God is doing in Jesus is to launch a new creation, then what he's doing is to launch a world that is based on justice, where things work together in peace, in harmony, for the flourishing of all things. Why do we work and fight against injustice? Why do we want to see poverty diminished and reduced and non-existent? Why do we want to see the sex slave trade eradicated? Why do we want to see racism eradicated? Not because they're end in themselves, but because they don't belong in the kingdom of God. They don't belong in the created order. They were never meant to be here. We allowed it to be here when we are in the first Adam. But because we have been transferred from that life to a new life in the new Adam, the perfect human, we now are called and commissioned and purposed with this vocation of living out and bringing about through the Holy Spirit the work of God's redemption in the world around us. That's glory. But that happens for us in the exact same way it happened for Jesus. It's not a joyful endeavor to fight against injustices. It's not a joyful endeavor to fight against racism, to fight against modern-day slave trades. It takes hard work and slogging. It's not a joyful endeavor to say to the world, your culture is wrong, your truths are wrong, because you then experience the same thing Christ experienced. You experience taking up your cross. But as you do so, you demonstrate 
who God is in the same way that God demonstrated who he is. We do it in our sermons. Here I want to just draw in quickly theological education. What I mean by people not knowing the Bible isn't so much just about the random stories and random trivia facts. I don't know all the random trivia facts. I mean, you take those like... Uh, um, but well, I hope I can you know, pass the, the average one of that. But even like Bible trivia board games, right? The most obscure questions. Most of us probably aren't going to know every single one. So at what point do we say this is something we should know and this is something we shouldn't know? What I mean by people not knowing their Bible is not knowing the end from the beginning. They don't know the story. They don't know how the parts make sense into this overarching narrative. Which means then that when they live their lives and they go out from the sermon, they have an idea that they can work with, but they still don't know why. They don't know how or why that application or that verse or that passage should have a massive impact on their life. Because they don't know how to plant it within this larger story of what God has done in the beginning, did in Christ, and now is going to do as our hope for the future. I think as pastors, you can challenge your congregants to think critically about these things. I think a sermon can be more about the Bible than application. Um, It's interesting, we sang one of the songs earlier. I wrote down the words, I think it was the last one, Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. If we truly believe the Bible is what it says it is, that it has in it the words of God, which are capable of transforming lives, then why can't we just preach and teach the Bible for sermons rather than trying to talk all about our culture and world and life experiences? Yes, give application, help them to connect it to the life, but make 75% of your sermon the Bible or this narrative or the things that are of eschatological truths and then say, and here's why this matters. Now go and live into this idea so that they can actually walk away having learned theology Not Calvin says this and Augustine says this or whatever. You don't have to do it in that way. But even just saying, here's why this passage of the Bible is important. Because in this passage, it is God demonstrating X within his larger narrative of redemption. If we can't articulate that, it doesn't matter what animal was in the story of Jonah. Because... The animal in the story of Jonah has a good story behind it, but it's not the story. And that's what I find most lacking in students. And if they're able then to say those things, then they're able to say, here's why living a moral life matters. Here's why, let's use the words Adam's been using, the words Bart uses, and the words that Paul uses. Obedience matters. Faith matters. And obedience 
were always the thing that was asked of Israel. And it's the main thing that they lacked time and time again. It is the thing that Jesus demonstrated. And when Paul talks about faith and obedience, he puts them together and he says faithfulness. What does it live, mean or look like to live lives in faith and obedience? It looks like living lives of faithfulness to the call of God upon our lives. No matter what circumstances we're in, whether we're in Nigeria or Kansas, God has a call upon our lives to live out our vocation as humans, as his representatives, representing God to the world in the same way that Jesus the true king did, through sharing in the world's sufferings and thereby demonstrating the glory of God, the true God, the God that the world actually wants and needs. So, okay, I'm rambling, so I'll end there. Thank you. Do we have time for questions? I don't know. I've talked too long. Hey, Haley, um, how do you, how would you suggest um, we deal, the problem, problem I've got with justice is that in so many ways the term has been co-opted politically and yeah. um, the Bible seems to use justice and righteousness interchangeably both in Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, is it, I'm curious, what's your operational definition of justice and how, do, how would you recommend we deal with um, competing parties who both lay claim to the word justice in different terms? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm not convinced that people use the word differently, but the reason they're doing it is different. So for me, justice is to set things right. Same as righteousness, to have a right relationship, rightness. Um, we are justified, we are set right with God. Injustice is the lack of rightness. So to bring justice is to set things right. It's just the opposite. But it's the reason for why we're doing it that I think is different in different places. Um, Because justification has such a history, theologically, especially within Reformed circles, um, and more recently now, in terms of, if any of you are, follow the world of Pauline scholarship, the new perspective on Paul, um, justification is a, a tricky word. But at its most basic fundamental root, it is this idea of setting right. So if we ask the question, why are we set right? Why are we receiving the righteousness of God? Why are we participating in the righteousness of God? It is so that we would be God's setting right people. We have been set right. We have been justified in order that we would set right the world around us. That we would be justified people bringing justice, rightness to the world. So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, Haley. 
Uh, thank you for the earlier reference to my going head over heels. Yeah, the bike. Uh, yeah. twice actually. Yes, I, twice. Throw yes, that in yes. There. I, I will not be returning the favor and sharing other little uh, side <laughs> tours that you took on the train or something. But <laughs> at least I yeah. didn't uh, yeah. Yeah. cuss during it. <laughs> Okay, I'm not very quick. Okay, so hey, here's a question. Uh, I, I love what you were talking about. Uh, this, uh, we're, we're set right to then uh, work to put the world to rights, like N.T. Wright says or something, to yeah. uh, return into Genesis 1, into a just state, and to make that like that. I'm wondering, you know, Jamie Smith talks about how we are saved to be culture makers. And he jumps all the way back to Genesis 1 and says we are we were made originally to be culture makers and that's what we're saved for as well and is there an interplay between being a culture maker and um, working to set the world to justice or uh, put it right I'm just wondering if yeah, yeah sure uh, I mean culture is simply the word that we apply to the daily life experiences of any human at any place and time on the planet. So there would have been a culture in Genesis, in the, the Garden of Eden culture. Uh, there, there would be a culture of the first humans and humans that came after. The difference would be what kind of culture and what are the virtues of that culture, what are the, the values of that culture. So yeah, I mean, we're culture makers. It's part of the work that we've been given is to create and to produce and to make life thrive. Um, but that culture that we're making, now really transforming slash making, should be a culture that is one about what God was about in the beginning. So, I mean, I perfectly agree with, with Smith. Um, I don't use those terms so much, but I'm also doing it more in terms of the biblical terms, which aren't, isn't using culture, but the idea is exactly the same. What type of world, societal world, created world, are we living in? What culture are we living in? Are we creating through our words and actions? So thanks, yeah. Same thing, just different words. I think we're out of time. Is 10.30 when we're supposed to break? Okay. okay. Thank you again. This has been wonderful to be with you. Yeah.